Video recordings of this podcast can be found on RaisingEquity.org and Raising Equity on YouTube. Welcome to Raising Equity. In this episode, we're going to continue our series on Black Girl Magic, understanding the stories of Black women. One of the things that frustrates me the most is how monolithic and narrow our portrayal of Black women is. And so from research and social psychology around bias and prejudice, one of the ways that we can unpack that is by understanding, individuating, and having the stories of people who are in that people group. And so I've had this series on Black women. Hopefully you've seen some of the other episodes where we just hear from Black women to understand the variety of experiences that they have, that they're not a monolith, and that they're amazing. So today I'm really honored to have with me my mother-in-love. That's the term that we use rather than mother-in-law. Uh, but I'm really pleased to have Marjorie Thomas with us today. So thanks for joining me. I'm happy to be here. I really am. I feel appreciate honored. you. Of course. Of course. Um, so one of the things I wanted to start with is just, I know that you're kind of a Brown v. Board baby, that you were born around that era. And that was the time where, you know, things were becoming integrated. It wasn't always pretty. And I'm curious how you came to understand yourself as a black woman, right? Like, I feel like I'm coming of age in a different time where, where unfortunately racism still exists, but it's a different space. So how did you come to understand yourself as a black woman? I, you mentioned, mentioned the laws changing. Of course, they don't change immediately once the laws change. But I had a different type of situation in that I was born into a military family. So there were two different types of experiences. There's one when you live off base, and there's an experience when you live on base. For instance, um, I remember in kindergarten, started kindergarten in New Jersey, and then finished kindergarten in Oklahoma, in Lawton, Oklahoma. We lived off base. We were at uh, Douglas School, which when you say Douglas or Lincoln, you know it's a school of color. But I remember as a young child, I stayed at Douglas from kindergarten until second grade. And I recall the books being frayed, and I recall the curtains being frayed. And it wasn't that things were dirty. They just weren't in good condition. And I remember that so vividly as a, as a young child, I remember sitting in second grade and looking up at the windows and thinking, Oh, if I could just wave a wand and just make this nice, the way my home is, I, I recall that. So that's in the private sector. But then when I was at a military school, kindergarten in New Jersey, and then third grade in, in um, Kansas, in Leavenworth, Kansas, it was different because everything was pristine. Interesting. And there was more equity there. Um, separate but equal doesn't exist. I didn't see it. We just, the schools didn't have the funding. I didn't know about funding at that time, but I just knew that things were kind of falling apart. I remember a lot of caring and a lot of love, but there was a great difference. So I was born 55 and nothing really changed, you know, when we're talking 60, 61. Right. Things really did not change. But I think what's interesting is to hear you talk about even in your kindergarten, first, second grade mind, you could feel the difference. And I I think people underestimate what kids can can feel, can experience, and can notice. Mm -hmm. They think, oh, we need to protect them. But literally what's in their space sends a message. And I appreciate you sharing that. And I'm not surprised that you were perceptive and observant like that as a child to just notice yeah. the difference. My family, my mother, one of, the, one of the things that she did, she always dressed us so well. We were always like her little ducklings. Everyone was, sometimes we were dressed alike, but we were some of the best dressed children. And she took great pride in dressing us and 
having us to read and to observe things and to tour and know about history and what have you. So when I was placed in some somewhere where things weren't the way that I was accustomed to having them, I felt awkward and I felt out of place. And I imagine you didn't have the language to know that that was about race at that point. Or I did, didn't know. Did Granny speak? No. Or Opa, did they say that no. these differences are about race? No. That wasn't really addressed. I think I'm from that era where your your parents and your grandparents just tried to shelter you. They tried to make your space a loving space and didn't want to discuss. Who wants to discuss with your child? No one wants you here. Uh, I remember in St. Louis living, I was four. I remember uh, starting the pre, uh, pre-K in St. Louis, and a little girl that I would visit, we lived on a street called um, Edsel, and uh, very nice homes, beautiful homes, and I would go to visit this little girl, or try to visit this little girl in the next building, I guess, and I visited with her once, we played once, and after that, I recall times of going over, and she was never available. So it was years later that I realized they did not want this little white girl playing with this little brown girl. And that's just what it was. But my mother would never say that. She would say, well, let's do this or play with your sisters or something like that. You don't, parents didn't want to tell their children that they're not wanted. Who wants that? Yeah, that's, it's so hard because I feel like in a way, living in St. Louis at this time, I felt like we didn't have a choice. Mm -hmm. With with the Ferguson uprising, yeah, it, it felt like I didn't have a choice but to be honest about what was going on. Well, and times are different, right? And that in some ways people romanticize the the fifties and the sixties, fifties more so, and that black folks had their neighborhoods, and and you might live next to a lawyer or a doctor or a right. mechanic or a hairdresser. That we were, even though segregation wasn't right and separate but equal was not true, uh, that we had more of a tight-knit community and that there was that buffer protection. Mm-hmm. Whereas now it feels like, ooh, I would be doing my kids maybe a disservice to not prepare them because it's less. it feels less possible to protect them. I, I think about your experience, the, the contrast that you had on the base and in the kind of the in the public sector. Right. And I wonder, I wonder if that, because you were able to experience the, the resources of the military, if it felt, I, I would love to talk to granny. Like if it just felt like, well, at least she's getting it here. And so I don't need to give her all the history yet. Right. Right. And then there was, um, there was a third section that I experienced as a young child when we moved to Germany. My father and mother were very uh, close with germ with people that were Germans, and so we were out in the town a lot and visiting friends. And what I noticed there is that people, the Germans, seemed to treat us almost as if we were exotic, honoring us. Really? Yeah, and uh, you know, just like. They didn't know what we were exactly. You know, it's like, you're different. And right. we didn't have, you know, like, we don't have people like this in Bavaria, you know. Right. And, and that was different as well. It's like, wow, okay. You're special in a way. So it's a lot of different experiences. Right, up. right. Mm-hmm. Huh. So when you had those experiences abroad, did it ever feel, um, did it feel objectifying at all? Or was it more, it's clear we're special in getting attention? It was special attention. Yeah. That's the way I felt about it. Yeah. And they were friends. So right. it was always good vibes, you know. Yeah. Good vibes and beer. <laughs> right. German beer. Uh-huh. Good German beer. Yeah. Huh. Even for the kids. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. I guess that's the case in Europe. Yeah. yeah. They're less less strict about all of that. Right. Yeah. Hmm. So when do you feel like you came to see yourself as a black woman in terms of your identity and 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 really think about what that meant was it always there but just not something that was talked about or was there I, a moment or experience? I think it was always there I I remember like so going from the school and in, in Lawton Oklahoma to 
Kansas. That was the next place. I remember being the only child of color in the class. I look at those pictures now and I'm like, oh my Lord, you know, what did I go through? <laughs> and you, there's a part of you that you feel a little alone, mm. you know, because you know you're different. Mm-hmm. Um, there is that, but there's still that army base feel of the way the army sets up things is by rank. So if you are a, an officer, you're living a certain life in certain areas, in certain homes. If you are not a, in, or if you're a non-commissioned officer, you're living a certain way. So there was equity in that sense. You know, the, the difference was, no, we're not, you know, officers' children or, or whatever, that kind of mm. thing. So that was another layer that hmm. you had to deal with. So... Grandpa YZ, did his rank afford you um, a level of status on It did. The base? He wasn't an officer, but he was high-ranking enough that it did afford a status. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It was that type of caste system. Right. Rank. Rank. Mm-hmm. Rank. Hmm. So then where did you finish high school? I actually finished high school in East St. Louis. That's right. Yeah. At Lincoln School of Color. In East St. Louis uh, at Lincoln High School. Uh-huh. I, I have uh, written down how many times I moved. I don't remember off the top of my head how mm-hmm. many schools I have attended. It's a lot, though. And there were times that we'd be someplace for six months, and then we would move. Really? But I didn't know anything different. That's how, what I was born into. So, And you kind of had a ready-made friendship circle and all your sisters. That was, now, that was a good thing. You take friends with you. I know people that have, um, in fact, a a female cousin that didn't have siblings. She was an only child. And it kind of wrecked her trying to make the adjustment all the time. It's hard Mm -hmm. to fit in. And that's something that I have learned as a a woman of color, as a black woman. It's like, you got to make the adjustment. You just have to. Mm -hmm. And if you have a hard time making the adjustment, it can tear it at you. So I've always felt, okay, make the adjustment. What And they're called, in the military, they're called orders when you are told where you're going to be. Mm-hmm. And I remember my father coming home and said, my mother says, we have orders to go wherever. And you make the adjustment. There's no, no, I don't want to go. I have another year of this. I want to do that. You make the adjustment. And I think that's the way I live my life now, I make adjustments and I'm okay with it. When I started working in the theater, it's something that I, a director told me that make the adjustment. I'm like, oh, I know what that feels like. Things are going to change and I need to change with it. So, hmm. yeah. So when you graduated from Lincoln, mm-hmm. uh, what year was that? 71. Okay. Mm-hmm. So in terms of when when you were there, that was during the time when King was assassinated then, right? No, actually, I was in Germany when King was, oh. was assassinated. And it felt different. You know what that's like to be in Europe and hear American news. It has a totally different spin. You know? Yeah. Uh, they loved King in, in Germany where we were. And uh, I didn't know about the devastation of what was happening other than seeing something on German news. You know, I didn't know about the the devastation and how this country was burning, and I just had no idea. Interesting. So that was kept out of the international press to some they, extent. Well, they did show they did show some of the things, but um, German TV was different. It's it's a it's uh, it's broadcast differently, and it's not that we we wouldn't necessarily sit up in front of the TV so much, you know, right. Um, Right. And there's not the 24-hour news cycle and Twitter and... Right. right to, there's t- I feel like it's too much coming at me right now. I really do. It's a lot. It's a whole lot. Yeah. Even being away from St. Louis, I, I get this thing on my phone, uh, St. Louis Rush. It gives you like five things that are going on in St. Louis, mm-hmm. newsworthy things that morning. Sometimes I'm like, nope, don't want to rush this morning. Can't deal with that, you know? <laughs> yeah. Huh. So what was it like going to Lincoln High School a- predominantly black school when you had gone to predominantly white schools, I'm assuming, and then international schools. Right. Well, came, coming from Europe, uh, coming from um, 
the German school. I actually came back here, went to California. So into school in Southern California in hmm. the San Diego area. That was totally different um, because I don't think people there all the time even know what color they are. I don't mean to be dismissive of it, but they're just, they're thinking a lot differently. However, I do recall that there was one black guy and there was me at this middle school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember people thinking that we should talk to each other, you know. Because you were the two kids We of were color. the two black kids, yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> we were both nerds, but no, I don't think that's going to happen, you know. Right. Um, but I remember feeling like they, I had to strive for things. I, I remember speaking. I was thinking about my grandson, Avery, graduating middle school. And I was thinking, remembering how I gave the speech for eighth grade graduation. Did you? Yeah. And how proud I was of myself because I felt I wrote this speech and it's really good. And they're going to hear me. And that's something that I always wanted to do. I wanted to speak in front of people. I, I won't say that I wanted to teach. I don't feel that I was called to teach. But I wanted to speak in front of people and share things with them. And um, so of the two black kids there, I was one and I was giving uh, the graduation speech. So that was, um, you know, the California vibe. I left there, went to Toledo, Ohio, where grandparents were. I was there two months in high school and that two months, okay, and then changed high schools again, went to Michigan. So I'd gone from you know, this German economy to California, to Toledo, and then ended up on the northwest side of Detroit, which burned. I don't know if you remember how the city set up, but that's where all of, they burned down all the buildings and so much was going on there. Mm -hmm. But it was a rich culture, a culture, the northwest side of, of Detroit was um, a prosperous, prosperous area. We lived across the street from Dudley Randall, a poet who wrote the poem for little girls mm-hmm. about the girls who were killed in the church in Birmingham. Mm-hmm. But I had no idea at that time that I was in basking in a wealth of art, you know, um, but it, it was different. I kept adjusting. Mm-hmm. I continued mm-hmm. to adjust. And you were a performer from a very young age. At, I performed at my grandmother's church. My grandmother Davis would take me to church and take us to church. And she would put me on the collection table because I was four. And I would stand there on the collection table and sing. And I loved it. I just thought it was just the most wonderful thing. And it is. Mm -hmm. And everyone, they seem like they loved me. And it just doesn't get any better than that. I think I was sold from a very young age. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So then, then what took you so long to do performing as your sole gig? Well, I think one of the problems was that when you are in the in military schools and you're moving so much, I watched so many times I would prepare for something. There would be a concert. And by the time the concert would happen, we were shipped to another base. Oh. And it was heartbreaking. Yeah. It really was because you know how it is you invest so much into performing. I, I just remember um, studying certain songs and things of that nature. So it was always, oftentimes just turned upside down and it just didn't happen. But what about college? I, had a, I wasn't focused at all on, on singing, on the arts, that, those type of arts. I just really wasn't. Was it, do you, looking back, do you think there was a reason why? I I mean, because I was trying to finish and I didn't have, it wasn't an area of study. So I was just trying to finish. Okay. You know. So something I think is important for folks to know, you didn't just go to college and finish. Tell them about the career that you had. Well, which one? And your major. Well, your major in college. (laughs) Well, I. Exactly which one. I was, I went, I went to Mortuary College. 
And that's so fascinating to me. Is it really? Like, yes. <laughs> who does? Who goes to mortuary? A lot of people believe well, clearly, they're not. <laughs> clearly, because we have them. But yeah, like I've always been fascinated. Why that? I was in in high school at Cass High School in Detroit. It's a technical high school. I was in electrical engineering. I hated it. My father wanted me to do that. I was Ooh, working I in his business. And we were installing burglar alarms. I hated that. I thought it was so boring. And I remember visiting my godfather in East St. Louis, who was an embalmer. And I thought it was fascinating. And I said, well, why don't you show me what you do? Tell me about what you do. And he said, well, when you go to college, if that's what, if you decide that you want to pursue that, I will take you on as an intern. And he did. But I remember thinking, I want something that changes every day. I don't want to wake up and do the same thing day in, day out. I just want to meet different people. And I want to, I want something to change all of the time. Well, I guess that worked. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Then that fit. So It's kind of a fluke, but you know. And how long how long were you in that business for? I'm really not out. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> You're really not. So you keep up your license. Oh yeah. And everything. After I do. How many I worked years? last yeah. month. Yeah. That's right. You did. The, the well the officer funeral home needed some help and they called me and I worked there for many, many years. And I was happy to, you know, to go and help. But yeah, I keep my license. I just renewed it. A few days ago. Hmm. Yeah, I finished my continuing ed and renewed my license again. Do you keep your real estate license? I as do well? not. I okay. do not. I was just thinking, you know, you sometimes think about life as in chapters. Mm-hmm. And I, I, in my mind, I was thinking, well, that was a chapter. Well, no, you continue to do it. I think everything that you do prepares you for something else. You can use it in one way or another. Yeah. You can learn from it. You know, were there any other black women in your mortuary science program? There was one, but she didn't make it. She hmm. she wasn't able to finish. And that was a challenge because at that time, it, it's so odd. Women started, other than the Egyptians in what we call modern times, women were um, caring for dead bodies, you know, to wash them and get them ready to be viewed for the last time. But then when it was saying that money was available, you could make money, men came in and, oh, no, we got a business going on here, you know? I had never thought about that. You're right. That was the role of the women Mm -hmm. to- You washed the body and prepared for the wake and the funerals took place and bombs would come to the house. The wake would take place at the home. But- People, when they saw money was involved, like, well, we'll build a home for funerals. And it's just like dying, like hospice. When people are ill, they want to be at home and die now. Well, that's how it used to be all the time. True. You know. True. But I never thought about just, yeah, the the history and the legacy of women in that position. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yet, you're right. When I see people who have funeral homes or when you look at the ads or whatever it's most it's usually men there the last uh classes that i attended i guess a month or so ago continuing at classes there are more women but when i was 77 i came out when i came out there were very there were few women Hmm. most of the women that were in that line of work it's because their parents owned a funeral home and they had to they inherited yeah they had to keep the business going But it was very hard because a lot of times you were facing professors who felt, you know, what do you know? Why are you here? You were dismissed, you know. Was it outright? Did they explicitly say things or was it more just a felt sense? No, I, it was outright. I felt the challenge. I felt the challenge. And to the point that I'm an outspoken person, you know that. Uh, maybe five, ten years ago, I saw one of my professors at a, a dinner, 
And we ended up at the same table. And I leaned over and silently told him how lousy he was. And I said, you did nothing to further my education or my career. You tried to destroy me. And not just me, but you did destroy another person, send another woman off. And um, I just want you to know I'm still here and I'm going strong. And I was there with the owner of the funeral home that I worked for. And I said, ask her, I'm doing very well and I'm good at what I do, you know? And he just looked like, what? I don't remember discriminating against you. He said that? No, that's the oh, look. Oh, that was a look he gave. What are you talking about? Did he have words that came out of his mouth? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> what words are there? I know, what can you that's say? What I, was, I was just waiting to see. I was fascinated. What could he There's say? There's nothing to say. Nothing know? to say. But I just felt glad, that I needed to share that with I'm him. I'm glad you got a chance to say because that. Because how him. often do we go along and, you know, people try to crush you and you just say, well, let me just shuffle along. No. <laughs> and that was a lot of years later, but you still got your chance. Yeah. Yes. And I guess the fact that I got the license and that I worked so well and that people, families that I worked with really said that I, they said that I really helped them through a, a hard time. And it, when you yeah. lose someone, it's very hard. So, yeah. Hmm. How did we get to talking about that? <laughs> oh, I was curious about how okay. you came to study mortuary science, yeah. like where, where that came from. I don't think I'll ever give up that license. I don't think so. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Mm -hmm. But in between, you had other careers. So I've had why real careers. estate? I was helping someone to um, find a home. And I did a lot of work with it. And the, the realtor that was supposed to be doing the work said, well, you should really get a check, but you're not licensed. So I got a license. <laughs> so you could get that check. <laughs> right. <laughs> So I got a license and it was, I, I really loved helping people to find a home for themselves. And a lot of times there were people that were what I enjoyed the most. And I still, I'm not licensed anymore, but I can share information. Mm -hmm. What I really loved is sharing with people who had never purchased a home, how to do that. How do you get your credit together to do something like that? What, what are the things that you should do or should not do? to ensure that you'll qualify for a loan if you are a person that's getting a loan, you know, for a home. Mm -hmm. um, just sharing information about funds that are available to new home buyers and, and that type of thing. I love do doing that because I could just see the satisfaction on their faces when they close. It's like, we have a home. Yeah, I just thought that was wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you've been helpful to us every time that we've had a purchase or made a move. Oh, yeah. Your mom and I are professional <laughs> packers now. Yeah. <laughs> that too. Yeah. But even just thinking through, okay, what location and if yeah. we're going to want to resell. So making sure we're in the right place. Like all of that information has right. been really handy. But I think that's what we have to do. You've got to share the information. The older women should share with the younger women, you know? Um, that's, that just needs to happen more. So we just have to make sure that the young people, not just women, but their ears are cleaned out and that they're able to hear what we are saying, that they can understand it and use it when they need it. Yeah. Yeah, I know that's real. I feel like there's a, in the Black community in particular, I feel like there's always a reverence for our elders, but it maybe, I don't know how to explain it. It feels like there's, um, maybe it's because my life is so busy. There's less time for that, that transfer of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Like I think about when I was young, every Sunday we'd be at grandma's house, my mom's mom and dad's right. house and have dinner. And there were times where I'm like, do we have to go to grandma and papa's? Right. But like, that was the tradition. That's what we did. And mm -hmm. I think about like how much time that probably gave my mom and her mom or just with her parents to sure. share, just share. Cause you can't always make that happen and compress it um, in a text or a phone call. Uh, sometimes I think the speed of things in our society keeps us from making those connections or keeping them strong. Yeah. You know? 
I know when I met you, you were doing real estate and it felt like you did some shows and did some performing. And now, decades later, the performing is is the core of what you do, right? It is. How did you make that shift? And I, I'm asking that mm. because you had a solid career where you were good at it and doing it well. You had this side gig where you were good at it and yeah. got licensed and could get a check. And you you focused on a completely different direction, which seems like a passion, but also I think for some folks it feels risky, whether it's to do their art or to do their perform like to 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 perform. I think a lot of people are like, ah, can I can I do that? And I can't make that shift, but you did and seemed to do it fearlessly. I don't know if it was fearlessly or not. I, I know the reason why I came away from. The real estate was because of a move. So I moved to Michigan Mm -hmm. with my husband. And my feeling is not just with real estate, but with anything in life, you shouldn't lead if you don't know where you're going. So with moving to Michigan to East Lansing, I didn't know anything about that area. And I didn't have a great desire to learn. So how am I going to sell homes to people and I don't know the area and I don't have a desire to get out and learn it? Yeah. And that to me, real estate is such a major investment. I don't think you can just show people a home or something and say, well, get this. I I need to be connected to it. Gotcha. Even it's like singing a song. If I don't believe in what I'm singing, if I don't know what it's about, I can't really share it with an audience. So I felt that way about real estate. So I didn't continue with that. I didn't pursue that Mm -hmm. any longer. And I was fine with it. I felt like uh, there was a time and a season for it. And uh, I was satisfied, which was probably good because with what happened with the economy, you know, true, it was it, it was a great time for me to step. Uh, to step away from that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But why lean into performing full time? Because I love it so much. And um, yeah, that just seemed natural. It seemed like I'm just na- going to push because, <laughs> you, oh, it just seems natural. But it takes work to get your equity card, to have multiple albums. Like, I guess I'm just saying it. Y- you say it like, oh, I just did it. Well, I did. <laughs> you just wake up every morning and you just say, "Made the adjustment." What, yeah, I made the. I really did. I made the adjustment. You know. Uh huh. Um, so, of all the performances you've done, all the plays, productions, or um, musical performances, which one resonates with you the most? As there are a few, there are a few. Um, for Colored Girls Who Considered Suicide is definitely a woman's woman's show yes. that touches so many emotions and talks about our growth. Um, I'm partial to the show about Billie Holiday, Lady Day at Emerson Bar and Grill. I've just returned from Baltimore where she was born. And I think about all the struggles that she had. When I went to Baltimore, I was under the impression that, or when I, when I went there and when learning about Billie Holiday and and many times I've done her shows, I thought that her anguish about the song Strange Fruit was from her touring in the South and watching and seeing people that were lynched. But I learned when I was in Baltimore last week that there were so many lynchings up there. There were lynchings all over the country. And her spirit was devastated by that. So that's another um, another play that has really touched me and I think touches women, especially women of color. Yeah. Did you know, well, of course, there were lynchings here in Missouri as well. All over, yeah. I just learned that there is a county in Missouri who is going to um, put a marker where there were known lynchings. Yes. And so... There's a move all over the country. Um, Brian Stevenson, who wrote Just Mercy and mm-hmm. his lynching museum, to to mark the territory, right? 
where people were lynched. And that's powerful. And I, I do think there are times in which we think about it like just happening in the South and it happened all over. Yes. All over. Yeah. A lot of times people want to, historian, so-called historians want to dismiss, say, Billie Holiday's um, problems to a bad relationship with a man or something like that, which was not the case. Maybe she had some problems with men, but um, everything that was going on with racial problems in the time that she grew up in, being a a person that, you know, her grandfather was white and she wasn't accepted in certain places. And all of that bothered her so much. And we want, we don't want to look at those things and face those facts, how devastating this can be to a young person, uh, you know, growing up. Yeah. And yet she used her voice and performance as a way to translate, to share, to emote. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's the power of music, right? Oh, yes. One of the roles that I remember the most is when you did Having Our Say with my mom, Uh the Delaney sisters. Right. Yeah. So for folks who don't know the show, can you tell them a little bit about the show? The Delaney sisters lived, both of them lived to be well over 100. So they had a lot of experiences and they met so many people that we read about in history books, people like uh, Paul Robeson and um, just so many people in history, they interacted with these people. They lived in Harlem. Bessie Delaney was uh, one of the first black dentists in the country. And um, Sadie was an educator, and she was one of the first black educators at an all-white high school in New York. They were strong women, and they, they lived in a time that was changing so much where women didn't have the right to vote. Um, and Bessie Delaney said, you know, she was asked, what's the bigger struggle, being black or being a woman? A woman? And she said, it's, it's hard being a woman because we're not given the rights that we should have. But she felt that the heavier load was being a black person. And, uh, but they're, they're both heavy loads to carry. But I, I've played both of those characters. Mm-hmm. One was more acting when I played Sadie. She was a, more of a gentle spirit. And, you know, we come into um, the problems with the way that we deal with racial problems. Everyone has their own character. So some people are more quiet um, and some people are more outspoken. So when I did Sadie, she was so gentle. And that was really acting for me to <laughs> not bite my, I mean, I had to bite my tongue about things, you know. Right. But I just stayed on script. But I really enjoyed that work because these were real women. I remember seeing them on like the Oprah show and I guess the 90s or something. And Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that I enjoyed that work so much. Yeah. And I feel like that's an example of just knowing the stories Mm -hmm. behind individuals who, again, might not be the icons, but are doing amazing things, have done amazing things, you know, and just to know their story. And that they are black women mm-hmm. and also that they happen to be black women living their lives. Right. This both and. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I resist this idea that I have to pick between my blackness and my womanness. And mm-hmm. I know I, it's a conversation people often have because they're two marginalized identities, but I can't separate the two. I, I don't know how you separate that. I, it's like, I don't know how you separate that. I so don't. I don't. I've had people ask me, well, what do you want to do more? Do you like singing or, you know, like being a jazz vocalist or, or acting? I can't really separate them. I really can't. They're just there together. Mm-hmm. Being black and being a woman, they're there together. It's why, why do we have to separate it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, my guess is the pull to separate it is just to think about people want things more simple in terms of, not wanting to see the complexities, right? Mm -hmm. When we think about intersectionality theory, like the reason why it came about was there were black women who were working for GM and they were getting lost. And so they sued and GM said, well, the court said, well, GM hires black people, but they hired black men. Right. Right. And they hire women, but they hire white women. So we get lost at the margins, right? So I, I think about just power and, and, wanting to like 
see us only as black people or only as women, but we haven't been accepted in feminism. I personally can't separate because I, I feel like, I feel that I'm made like a quilt. I, I feel like I have so many pieces that have come from so many different places and so many different people, and they're all stitched together. And all of that makes a whole, and all of that is a covering. All of that is me. So I can't, I don't want it, I don't want it torn. <laughs> you know, I've spent all this time trying to keep it sewn together and add to it and, and what have you. So just accept the beauty of what it is or not, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's a beautiful metaphor. It's a beautiful metaphor. Because I've thought about it as silo, you know, people want to silo the identities mm-hmm. and that we want to make sure we see people in their, their, um, their intersectionality, but that idea of a quilt and the different oh, blocks yeah. mm-hmm. and how they get woven together is a better example because you would never think to pull a quilt apart. Right. Because it's beautiful in the tapestry that it is. I think black women are beautiful. Mm-hmm. Is there any song or any lyrics that come to mind as we have this conversation about Black girl magic, Black women, um, or even like what we need to know as adults as we as we try to foster the next generation of Black women? What do we need to be telling them? Any music come to mind? Yeah, I'm I'm thinking about you know mention I mentioned before that. Young people need to know that they are enough. They need to know that they are valued. I think we have to tell the truth and tell it to the young people. I feel like we have to be honest with them and feed it to them at a level where they can, you know, deal with whatever the matter is. But uh, I I think about uh, one of our recordings is um, Fade to Blue. And... um, there's a verse in that there's a verse in that song my father always thought that i wrote the verse for him because of him he thought that because i was raised in a military family and he was always in another part of the world you know in another country uh, that i felt abandoned and that he wasn't able to do the things that he thought he should do and the but it was the verse wasn't about him. It was really something totally different. But it all boils down to when you give your word, my mother says, your word is your bond. The Bible tells you your word is your bond. When you say you're going to do something, follow through and do that. And it's especially true for children because they trust you. And if you if you don't think you can do it for sure, don't say it for sure. Because as parents, we are there for sures, you know. But the the verse from Fade to Blue, the I think it's the last verse. It's um, it goes something like, "When I was a little girl, I'd sit on the porch outside. My daddy promised he'd come home and take me for a ride. Little girls always believe what their daddy says true." Don't break a little girl's heart. Mamas and daddies do what you say you're going to do. Because in the end, if it don't come through, their hearts fade to blue. So let's be honest with them and follow through. Mm. And to me, that's the spirit of raising equity mm-hmm. is to be honest with them. Yeah. I Too often, too often... I have students who come into my college classes and I'm teaching them about oppression and the psychology of it and they are blown away. Like their parents never told them, mm. their parents never explained to them, they tried to shelter them. Yeah. And so I know that's not what you were thinking about in in terms of those lyrics, but to me I feel like part of what we need to do is to help them and prepare them to step into the world that they're inheriting. Right. And like you said, these are different times. And I think we need to prepare them from a very young age in a way that's appropriate for them as they grow and develop so that they can create something different. Because too too much is too much is the same. For sure. Too much is the same. But 
I mean, any advice you would give to other women who, because I have, for example, I have a friend who has been in a corporate job her whole life, Mm -hmm. makes good money, but has a passion elsewhere and is scared to leave because she feels like, you know, people call them the golden handcuffs, right? To work at a corporate job, have a good check coming in, right? right? But you have seemed to live a full life, multiple full lives, (laughs) I think I'm just kind of different like that. I I think my parents taught us how, you know, I'm trying to remember how my dad would say it. Maybe you're afraid, but just do it afraid. Do it scared, you know, and you go on and do it. You hope it works out and you get information from people who have done this and you try to do the right things. have a very supportive husband who's a phenomenal musician, you know, so I had help, but I, maybe I did it scared, but it was like, I want to do this. If it doesn't work out, I'll do something else. As long as I wake up alive, as long as no one is killed in the process. And I used to say, this is as long as no one dies in Jesus is Lord, I'm okay. I'll keep going. And that's my philosophy. Hmm. I think that that philosophy is powerful and it's similar to something I say to my boys. I say, we can do things and be scared. Yeah. We can do things. I've heard you say that. Yeah. That it's okay that you're scared. It's okay that you're nervous. Like we can do things and be nervous Yeah, and be uncertain and still put one foot in front of the other. I wonder if that's part of why I don't, have you heard this phrase, black girl magic, right? I'm curious your thoughts, but I wonder if that's, part of like why as black women people see us and have this assumption that like oh we can do we can do so much or we are so um we're magic like that we like there's this maybe it's because of what's come before or the lessons that have been taught to us it's kind of like you you just you do it you make the adjustments you you do things and you're scared and and we put we 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 don't let things hold us down or keep us down. You can't. You really can't. I mean, I think about it. I come from good, strong stock. I, I've lived through a lot. I feel like I'm in such an odd age because I know so many old, old, old things and it's such a brand new world. So I feel that I've lived, I'm living a lot. I'm living a big life over a, a wide span of time. But I, I think about my maternal grandmother and the things that she went through and how she would tell me, uh, she picked cotton in Mississippi as a young girl, and how she would tell me that uh, the, the guy that was the overseer in the field was so cruel, mm. and how she and her girlfriend, if he was really mean that day, they would you know pick the cotton and they'd pee in the cotton to weigh it down. It's like, we'll fix you. That's black girl magic, okay? <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. That's the stock that I come from. Right. You know, I think about, gosh, when I was 10, I remember my step-grandmother, her mother, sitting there in the living room, was a slave. Mm. She was a slave. And I remember my grandmother telling me how, as a child, her mother was burned because the master was father to both of the girls. And the little white girl was so mean to her. Mm. I remember hearing that at 10. When you make it through things like that, you, you can be strong. You know, you can move on and try something else or just keep doing what you're doing if you enjoy doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, that's black girl magic to me. And the same, the same, same child that was born a slave how she had two daughters and one became an amazing educator in Jackson, Mississippi, and one became a businesswoman, a very successful businesswoman. It's things like that. When you see that in front of you, that women are doing this, it gives you strength. I I don't have any brothers. I come from a family of all girls. I have a lot of girl cousins, just a couple of uh, boy cousins, but there was never a gender assigned to different chores. 
I'll do whatever needs to be done. When I hear, I don't want to dismiss people, but he didn't take out the trash. Well, take it out. You know, I just was, I grew up in a household where there was no gender. Right assigned to things that needed to be done. We need to live. We need to take care of our home. It that's if that's black girl magic, then just let the sparkles fly, you know? <laughs> well and I I appreciate you sharing that because it I think it is the definition of black girl magic okay. and and we are only in touch with that if we share the stories mm-hmm. and if we know the stories. Yeah. And that's part of why I wanted to do this series is so that people who maybe don't have relationships with Black women to know the stories of their of their grandmothers and their grandmothers and gra- their grandmothers right. to understand the lineage. Um, I think nowadays we do, we do we see things on um, like shirts where it's the Rosa Parks like um, you know Rosa Parks or Harriet Tubman quotes or. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there people who in snippets understand strength in black women, but it often is this kind of in one or two people rather than in the everyday black women that they know. Yeah, or the you know the just the people that are in their family, and to know those stories is so important. It really is. It really is. And so I appreciate you sharing your wisdom. I was just thinking about magic, magicians oftentimes have an assistant. And you need assistance in life. You need you need that village. You need your family. You need friends if you don't live near family. You need that for the magic to happen. You know, my grandmother wasn't in that cotton field alone. She had a friend with her. You really do. We need to lean on each other and support each other. Um, so that help uh, that helps to make the magic happen. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. And I think sometimes we are afraid and we think, oh. There's competition there, but no, sometimes we, oftentimes we can build each other up. We can be together and make each other stronger. I agree. And mm-hmm. I, I would have a hunch. I know how you'll respond, but I feel like we often in our society assume that women together are going to be petty and are going to argue. And we assume that black women are going to be catty or petty. And that's not been my experience. It's an assumption. It is. Truly assumption. And I, I, th- I feel like it's one that women often perpetuate as well. They assume it yeah. of each other. And that, is not, that has not been my experience. I mean, I've run into some catty and petty people. Right. They haven't all been women. This um, is true. This right? is true. But have, have you experienced the collective building up more than the pettiness? I think, yes, more than. I think that what I want to always do is check the character of a person. And then I can align myself with that person. But like I said, I come from a woman's world. And yeah, there are problems between women. But overall, I think that we're supportive of each other. I really believe that. I know Mm -hmm. that. I feel supported. Mm -hmm. And I think it has to go generational to the, you know, to daughters, granddaughters, daughter-in-laws, whatever, you know, daughter-in-loves in in your case. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, but it, it's, I, I think it's more people support. I feel more supported than I feel torn down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. Again, as I'm listening to you, it's, it seems to be, so correct me if I'm wrong, that in your upbringing, you, you just were a black woman. It wasn't like it was said to you, you have to run twice as fast, jump twice as high. You just were who you were in the world and were given the support that you needed to navigate. I remember my father saying, whatever you're going to do, you just need to do it well. That's something I recall him saying. Whatever the choice is, just do it well. You need to commit to it and do mm-hmm. it well. So that's mm-hmm. basically what I, what I would hear. You know. And if you had to give any advice to other young Black women or older Black women who are just navigating life, if we think about whether it's Sandra Bland or some of the other ways in which Black women have been targeted by state violence, um, I I know that some women just get really, you can get paralyzed by the fear and you can can get paralyzed by the, the trauma. What advice would you give them 
to navigate in a more um in a way that's more in touch with our our black girl magic that's more in touch with our inherent yeah. worth i i think it's important to wake up as a young girl wake up knowing that you are enough and when i say that i mean it's like you don't have to do anything to yourself that you don't want to do to make yourself better you want to grow and you want to be better but just your essence your foundation you're enough you're loved you know just know that because sometimes i think young people not just young girls i think they don't know that they are enough and that causes a problem yeah it can cause a lot of problems that sense of not feeling like you're enough. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't lie there. That's something that I still struggle with and have to remind myself to not get caught up in. And it, I think some of it is, is just. Oh, you're more than enough. Well, thank you. You really are. Well, thank you. Uh, but there, there's that. That's that, not the same as extra. Okay. <laughs> just to be clear. <laughs> right. <laughs> Although I have been told that I am extra well. and too much, but <laughs> and, but I do I I again trying to be honest with folks around like what's behind what they see. Yeah, there are some days where I have to remind myself that I don't wake up automatically feeling that uh, that I have to make sure I get in touch with it, mm-hmm. and that I have to make sure I do things that that foster the feeling and the knowing yeah. so that it's closer at hand. Of course. Yeah. 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 What do you do to to keep that in front of mind? I don't know if I say it to myself. Um, I just, maybe I know it now. Maybe I do. Um, there was a time when I didn't really know it where I thought I had, I've got to do this and I've got to do it better, faster, and harder and, you know. I used to think that, but I have to satisfy me at this point. Um, so at this point, I, I feel that maybe it's just in my spirit and I just, it's kind of like a prayer or something mm. um, that I reaffirm it that way. And I know God loves me. Um, I have family that loves me. And so I'm good. I really am. Yeah. Again, I've, wanted to share these stories because so often we overfocus on the negative, mm-hmm. right? We overfocus on the the stories of struggle and yeah. we don't share the details of our successes, right. of our daily wins, of our uh, being in touch with our inherent worth. And I, and I feel like that's essential as as we, not just as Black women, but as a society, try to dismantle some of the oppression that we have, that we know each other, that we understand each other's stories, um, that we not just see each other in narrow, narrow ways. I just thought about something something you asked earlier. I think that the reason why I moved forward and made some of the changes that I made, and I'm still making changes, I really am, I wouldn't let anyone tell me that it couldn't be done. No one told me, you can't do that. Or if they did, I didn't listen to that because I thought, I, well, how about I try, you know? So I think what you feed yourself, what you hear is important. Uh, and that you don't tell your own self, I can't do it. I can't do it. Just If you want to do it, try it. Go for it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've appreciated you sharing and I I it's interesting. We didn't talk tons about music even though Oh, it's everywhere, don't you hear? It? <laughs> yeah, right? And and it's uh, it to when I talk about you now or when, you know, people ask about my in-laws, mm-hmm. I share that they're jazz musicians, right? right? Um and so if people are listening and want to hear more from you, not just your wisdom, but your beautiful voice. Oh. Uh, we know that they can find the album on iTunes, right? Matters of the Heart. You can get the last album on iTunes. Oh, I'll, Anywhere. Any of them, yeah. Sure. Yeah. iTunes, Amazon, all of that. Yeah. And they can follow you on Facebook. 
at Marjorie Thomas, mm-hmm. the Mar- website, mrtjazz.com. Right. Yes. Yeah. Anywhere else they can find you? If you go there, you'll find me and you can follow me. Sounds yeah. good. Sounds good. A lot of threads. It'll lead a lot of different places. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. And thank you all for joining me on Raising Equity. Hopefully you picked up some gems from my mother in love. And if you enjoyed what she said, let me just tell you, you will thoroughly enjoy hearing her sing. So check out their album and their website at mrtjazz.com. And I'll see you next time on Raising Equity.